Good morning. Uh, certainly good to see all of you this morning. Glad that, uh, again, you've chosen that good part. Our Lord blesses us and gives us the opportunity to be with him. And uh, we do well when we take advantage of opportunities like this to be with him together in the assembly. I sometimes like to think about what I consider challenging questions, matters of uh, Christian faith. And sometimes I have to wrestle uh, with these questions. Uh, I don't remember how long it's been now, but I tried to consider one of these questions with you some time ago. If God is good and God is great, why do people suffer? Uh, more recently, I've been thinking more about this question. If God is good and God is great, why does he punish eternally? When I think about these kinds of things, here's the one thing that people can be tempted to do that I will not allow myself to do, and I would encourage you to make sure you don't do as well. That is, we will never compromise the idea that God is good and God is great. Our God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good to us. That is to say, he blesses us. Let's think about the nature of God for a moment. He, he blesses every one of us each and every day. You know, he blesses people who do not know who he is and people who, having heard about him, choose not to love him in return for his love. God blesses everyone every day. He allows people the strength that they have in their bodies, the soundness of mind that they do have. He, he gives people the things that they need to be sustained physically, and he provides for people spiritually, whether they accept it or reject it. He blesses everyone every day. The Bible tells us that God is love. The Apostle John said in 1 John twice, God is love. In his essence, that's who he is. And we won't compromise that. The Bible is too clear about it. God is good. The Bible tells us he is kind. If you read in the old version, in the King James Version, over and over again, the Bible talks about his loving kindness. God is good. And God is great. The last time I thought with you about a question like this, I just pointed out to you, you can see his greatness all throughout the Bible. I mean, you can see it as soon as you open the book of Genesis and read about the creation. I mean to say, when he opens his mouth and he speaks, things happen like the universe comes into existence. God is great. Sometimes people are inclined to dismiss what the Bible says because it testifies of his greatness. That is, it tells us about the supernatural things that he has done, the supernatural things that are taking place even now and that will take place later. When I say supernatural, what I mean is there is nature, nature and there are laws to nature, but God is above nature and he does things that are above nature. He is... Uh, he is a great God. He has great power. And we see that in creation. We see that in the miracles that he has performed. We see that in salvation wrought in Jesus Christ. And we see that in his justice. You know, sometimes you can get away with things with men. I mean, to say, if I'm inclined to, I can put one over on some people. But no one will put anything over on the God of heaven. He's too great for that. He knows everything and he can do anything and everything that is consistent with his divine nature. 
The only limitation on God is his perfect nature and his will. God is great. He is good and great. When you make affirmations like this, though, there are some people who, not knowing really what the Bible teaches, there are some people who will hear those kinds of affirmations and then they will see something in the Scripture or they will hear something and they think to themselves, well, this is logically inconsistent. I want to introduce you to what is called uh, the problem of hell. Uh, this is one of the discussions that oftentimes takes place sometimes in sort of a philosophical circle with people who do not believe in God where they will criticize the Christian system and they will criticize and ridicule believers because they say, wait a minute, you're telling me that your God is good, your God is loving, you're telling me that your God is great and at the same time you're telling me that your God is going to send some people to hell and he's going to punish them for eternity. Is that right. I read some of uh, what people had to say about these things. I've read debates that people engaged in about this kind of thing, and I'll tell you, they have oftentimes the most condescending idea and attitude when people say God is good and God is great, and some people are going to be banished outside of his presence for eternity, and they'll have to suffer for their life of rebellion. They think that that is inconsistent somehow. It wouldn't bother me as much if the atheist alone believed that. But, you know, as they say that and they talk to people who are ignorant and unlearned, I mean, people who don't know the Bible, sometimes people are discouraged from continuing in serious investigation of the Bible when they hear things like that because it seems like a conundrum. It's a difficult problem that they can't sort out in their minds. And sometimes even people who do believe who are not rooted and grounded in their belief, can be dissuaded from belief because here they may think is a question they cannot answer, a problem they cannot resolve. This is what is classically considered the problem of hell. First, the good God of the Bible would not want people to suffer eternally. You tell me your God is good, then he would not want people to suffer eternally. Number two, the great God of the Bible created hell to punish people eternally. If I understand this right, they would say, uh, God is good, so he doesn't want people to suffer eternally. And if I understand this right, your God is great. He created everything that is, and that includes hell where he anticipates people suffering eternally. Do I have that right? Number three, they would say, there is no justification for such severe and extended punishment. And that leads them to this conclusion. The good and great God of the Bible does not exist. Now, most people in making this argument would say, listen, they don't, they don't believe God exists anyway. But, but in ridiculing the God of the Bible, they would say, if your God is so good and your God is so great, then this would not be the state of affairs for people in eternity, at least for some. Uh, there's, a lot more, uh, there's a lot more that could be said about this than I'll have time to say this morning, but I just want to point out a few things that I think are digestible enough for us to see that there are some significant problems with this argument. And these are some things that maybe would be uh, helpful to you in thinking through these matters on your own and maybe in talking through these matters uh, with some other people. There are several fallacies, weaknesses in this argument. 
that I invite you to consider. First, let me say this, though. Uh, we don't disagree on those two first two premises. Uh, that is, a good God would not want people to suffer in eternity. Uh, we, we wouldn't disagree with that, would we? Because we look and we see in John 3 and 16, the Bible says, uh, Jesus speaking, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son specifically so that those who believe in him would not suffer in eternity. God doesn't want anyone to be lost. He, he loves the world and doesn't want anyone in it to be lost. I know that's right. You know, in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8, the Bible says that uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God has demonstrated his love to us and that he sent Christ to pay the price so that we could avoid eternal damnation. I mean, he, he's shown us how he loves. He doesn't want anyone to, to be lost. Now, at the same time, we know that the good and great God of the Bible did create hell. We know that. He's created everything that is. The Bible tells us that he had created hell for Satan or the devil and his angels in the first instance. He's created everything that is. And that would include hell, the place of torments. That being said, we disagree very strongly about that third premise. That is, there is no justification for such severe and extended punishment. Let's think about why we would disagree with that one. Number one, evil does exist, does it not? If a person believes in God or not, they would acknowledge that there's evil in the world. Evil does exist, and justice requires that evil be punished. You know, I want you to think about this for just a second. If... Uh, if you lived in a family, in one household, where people were allowed to do everything in anything, and they were in, allowed to engage in outrageousness and lawlessness to the injury of others in the household, and the parents refused to restrain and punish, now you tell me, who considers that a good parent? See, we expect justice requires that there be restraint and that there be punishment. Now you tell me, who would want to live in a society where the authorities and the government refused to punish those who engaged in lawlessness and outrage to the injury of their neighbors? You see, justice requires that there be some punishment for evildoing. And the thing about this is, no matter how good the parents, they're not going to get this right all the time. And no matter how good the secular government, they're not going to get this right all the time. But our great God, listen to it. When he punishes, he gets it right every time. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, you know, in verse number 14, that he will bring every work into judgment, whether it is good or evil. I'm going to miss some things. I'm doing my best, but I'm going to miss some things when it comes to rearing my children. And though they may do their best, you know, the secular authorities in our country, the judges and the lawmakers, listen, they're going to do their best, but they're going to miss some things. God won't miss not even one thing. The Bible tells us in... Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 36, every idle word that men speak, 
they will have to give account of it in the day of judgment. And so the fact is, evil exists and justice requires that it be punished. And I don't know anyone who's going to suggest that that's not correct. So the first fallacy is that evil exists and there has to be some punishment for it. And people don't usually enjoy being punished. People who commit evil deeds don't like to be punished here on the earth, but that does not mean it is unloving to punish them. Does the parent who restrains his or her child, spanks his or her child if it has to be done, does that parent not love his or her child? The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that God chastens those whom he loves. And if he doesn't chasten, the Bible says, then it's like that person is not his child. That person is a bastard whom he doesn't love. Restraining and punishing when and how appropriate is a loving thing to do. And so that is a weakness in the argument. Number two, punishment is not disproportionate merely because it is extremely severe. You know, the idea seems to be with those who would make this argument that if there's ever a severe punishment, then it is somehow unjust and inappropriate. But you know what? Sometimes some behaviors require extreme punishment. In order to measure whether or not a punishment is proportionate, you first have to take a look at the gravity of the crime. And who decides how grave the offense is? I'll tell you, the person who's usually in the best position to tell you how severe and how grave the punishment, the crime is, is the person who has been, uh, who is the victim of that crime. You know, it may not bother me when I read in the newspaper that something happened to somebody I've never heard of and never will meet. But I'll tell you something, that person's life may never be the same again. If you want to know the impact of the crime, you have to consider the victim. When it comes to sin, you see, people can be very cavalier sometimes about, about sin because they think, well, that doesn't really concern me. It didn't bother me. But, you know, God is the victim when people sin against him. When people rebel against God, they don't slap me in my face. They slap him in his when people rebel against God, they don't spit in my face, they spit in his. And so if you want to know how severe the crime is, you have to listen to the one who is aggrieved. And that's the father. Now that's the first thing I'd point out to you. The second thing I point out to you here is, in order to judge whether or not a crime is proportionate, you have to consider the purposes of punishment. Why do we here on earth punish in the first place? My criminal law students, I go through this with them. There's some classical sort of purposes for punishment. Uh, one of them is deterrence. That is, we punish people because we want to deter them from committing more crimes, and we want to deter others who see what happened to them from committing further crimes. We consider this a classical and a good reason to punish people. You don't want this outcome again, don't engage in that behavior again. You see what happened to him, you see what happened to her. If you don't want that to happen to you, then you shouldn't do what they did, deterrence. You know, in Matthew chapter 10, in verse 28, Jesus tells us that deterrence 
is part of the reason that God punishes in eternity. He says, don't fear people who can destroy the body and then do nothing with the soul. But I'll tell you who you should fear. I'll tell you who you should be thinking about. I'll tell you who you should be listening to. You ought to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, does that mean he wants to destroy body and soul in hell? No, it means you see what can happen, so order yourselves to avoid that. Sometimes with my children, I I, listen, I hate to have to to spank my kids. I I just get no enjoyment out of it. I figure they may not love it either, you know. So when I see that coming, I will sit down and talk with them and say, listen, friend, you're putting me in a position here. We have discussed this. You know this is not appropriate. And I'm sort of running out of wind in talking about it. And the next thing that will happen is this. Why do I do that? Because I don't want that to happen. And I'm trying to give them every incentive to avoid that outcome. We seem to think that people should only be motivated by good. We seem to think that God should use the carrot only. You know what he does, use the carrot, you know, and people are motivated by the carrot. If you tell people there's going to be a reward, people will usually try to do what they can to reach that reward if it's an invited enough reward. But people are also motivated by the stick. God uses the stick. He uses both. Deterrence is a good reason to punish. If hell was a sufficient enough deterrent, we wouldn't have any sin in the world. You understand? It could be even more severe than it is. Because God has already told us that, listen, hell is a dark place. Hell is a painful place. And the Bible talks about fire and lakes of fire. And the Bible talks about this fire burning continually. And the Bible tells us the worm doesn't turn. And people are going to be in great agony and so forth. And even hearing that, even reading that, people still continue to abide in sin. It can't be too severe because it's not deterring all crime. But it has to be severe in order to be an effective deterrent. That's number one. Number two, a second classical reason for punishment is retribution. This is the idea of a person getting his or her just desserts. That is, this is what you deserve. Uh, There's the idea of you getting what you are properly owed. Now, who among us thinks it is is just for me to go to work every day and work and earn and then not be paid? I mean, every every one of us will say, well, I deserve that and you ought to give me what I deserve. Well, you know, it works the other way, too. I mean, if you do the wrong thing, friend, then you deserve something for doing the wrong thing, and nobody has mistreated you for giving you what you deserve any more than they would mistreat you for giving you your paycheck on the 1st and 15th or whatever the interval is. You know, the Bible tells us, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The Bible tells us that this idea of retribution is part of God's thinking when it comes to eternal punishment. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and these verses are very familiar. I just invite you to consider them in this context. 
The Bible says, beginning at verse number 6, if so be that it is a righteous thing with God to recompense, that is to give back, affliction to them that afflict you and to you that are afflicted, rest with us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he saying? God considers it a righteous thing simply to give people what they deserve, to give people what they earn. And listen, when it comes to, when it comes to how we handle crimes and outrages against society and our criminal system, we consider this a pretty good idea. Yeah, a person who steals a certain amount of money, they should be punished. A person who steals 10 times, that shouldn't be punished the same way. Why? Because they deserve a greater punishment because they did more harm. The idea of retribution. Isolation is the idea of incapacitating a person. You know what? There's some people who sort of demonstrate that they're not fit to live in society with the rest of us. And we try to deter them. You know, we do our best to try to convince them that it's a bad idea and we can't seem to come up with a punishment that's good enough to deter their bad behavior. So you know what we do? We isolate them from other people so we don't have to go into CVS with them. Yeah, you know, I've seen a lot. Friends, I have seen, I've seen the worst that our society has to offer. And I'm going to tell you something. I love everybody. I don't want to have to go into CVS with everybody. Some people should simply be removed from others to keep the rest safe. This is the idea of incapacitation or isolation. And we consider this a good theory when it comes to punishing people. There are just some people, when they go before the judge, they say, we obviously can't stop you. You're going to do what you want to do, but you know what we will do? We'll just put you over here in a corner somewhere where you can't hurt anybody else. And nobody seems to fall out thinking that that's unfair. Well, the Bible tells us this is part of God's thinking. 2 Thessalonians 1 again, look at verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, and these are those who are lawless, those who do not know God and won't obey the gospel. He says, who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction, listen to it, from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and be marveled at when, uh, in all them that believe, because our testimony unto you has been believed in that day. What is he saying? In, in 1 John chapter 1, the Bible says God is uh, perfect and pure light, and in him is no darkness at all. When Jesus comes back again, he's going to receive those who have walked in the light to be with him, and he's going to have to separate those who have walked in darkness from those who walked in the light. That's just the idea of isolating those who have decided that they don't want to be with God. But what I'm pointing out to you is in every aspect of life, we accept these as good and just reasons for punishment. I've got two boys, only the two, and neither one of them is a desperado, but you know, every now and again, one of them gets going a little too hard at the other one, and I separate them. I mean, until you calm down a little bit, I need to isolate you so you won't keep antagonizing or hurting this other one. We consider that good and just reasoning in every aspect of life. Listen, it's good and just reason when God does it too. This idea of rehabilitation, I won't spend much time on this, but let me just point this out. We don't do rehabilitation. 
in the American criminal justice system. We don't believe in it. It's not considered a viable theory. Punishment is punishment and rehabilitation is something else. Punishment is not rehabilitation. Now, God will try to encourage better behavior through punishment now, but in eternity, he will not be rehabilitating anyone. See, right, right now, he says to you, let me slap your hand so you'll know that's not good. Let me, let me spank your bottom so you'll know that that's not good and that there's something worse coming if you don't desist. But if you say, I'm going to do it anyway, at a certain point, he's not going to be concerned about rehabilitating you. You've shown yourself to be incorrigible. And there are incorrigible people in our society, and we're not trying to rehabilitate them. We're just trying to keep ourselves safe. And God is... God is ultimately going to reach that point with some people. Pain is what makes punishment effective. Pain promotes the beneficial aspects of punishment, and heinous crimes merit severe responses. That doesn't make it unjust or unloving. Number three, punishment is not disproportionately long merely because it lasts longer than the crime. Sometimes people will say, well, you know what? If God wanted to punish folks in hell, that's fine. But you know, at a certain point, he should cut that off. Yeah, I don't know. Let people suffer for a hundred years or a thousand or two thousand, however many, and then just cut that off, you know. And if he allows it to go on long, then it's, uh, it's somehow disproportionate and unfair. I thought about that. I thought about that. And then I had to do some quick math. You know, there are times where I have uh, prosecuted people who had committed murders, you know, like more than one, four, five, eight. There are times when I prosecuted people who had injured, and this is not an exaggeration, who had injured hundreds of other people who lived lives of crime and lawlessness and outrage. Now, let's take any one of the crimes, any one of the crimes. It doesn't take as long as you might think. You maybe don't think about it. I've just had to think about it. It doesn't take as long as you might think to take somebody else's life. It doesn't take long at all. I mean, you procure a weapon, you point the weapon at someone, and you pull the trigger seconds, and you have taken somebody's life. Seconds to take somebody else's life. When that case comes before me, you know how long I'm wanting to see that person punished? I'm not measuring it in seconds. You don't measure the punishment by the length of time it takes to commit the crime. Look at this, for example. I just did some quick math. In a year, if my math is right, this is 365 days, time, uh, 365 days times 24 hours a day times 60 minutes in an hour, I get 525,600 minutes in a year. Anybody think it would be appropriate to punish somebody, put them into prison for one year when they commit a murder? We would lose our minds if that was the punishment. But listen, if it takes a minute, and a minute's a good long time, if it takes one minute to take somebody else's life and then we punish them for over 500,000 minutes, that means the punishment would last a half a million times longer than the crime. Are you following this? And we would say that's not enough. But isn't that disproportionately long? 
Well, listen, if we put someone in the prison for 10 years, then we're talking about 5 million times as long to punish someone for one minute of activity. And who of us, who among us would say, well, that's too long to put someone in the prison for 10 years because the murder only took one minute? 25 years. 50 years. 50 years, more than 25 million minutes for a crime that lasted less than one. The most liberal of thinkers, I mean those who say, well, they disagree with the death penalty, you know, they disagree with life without the possibility of parole and so forth. If we put someone into prison for one year for murdering someone in their family, they would say, I know it's 500,000 times as long as it took to commit the crime, but that's not enough. The point I'm making here is punishment is supposed to last longer than the crime. And we have to think about this when dealing with God and no crime goes unpunished. How many minutes of punishment are appropriate for numerous daily sins committed over a lifetime? How long is that supposed to last? See, if you're going to deal with God in his justice, that means no crime is going to go unpunished. You know, a lot of people get away with a lot of stuff because we just can't find it all out and we don't have the time to track it down and punish it. But with God, nothing is going to go unredressed. And you think about it, a person who is committing, crime, committing crimes against him sins every day of their life, multiple sins. And a person lives, the Bible says, you know, you get three score and 10, and if by reason of strength, really good health, you get 80 years. And let's say a person, just for the sake of discussion, doesn't become accountable until they're about 20, just for the sake of discussion. That's 60 years of crime every day, and God's going to punish every one of them. Now, you tell me, for every one crime, more than 25 million minutes, how long is that supposed to last? It's hard to calculate, isn't it? It, it, it kind of starts sounding like eternity. Like it's just going to go on beyond anything we can appreciate. And the thing about eternity, eternity is not time. See, this is part of the fallacy in the argument, but I just won't waste a lot of time on this. But eternity is not time. Eternity is existence outside of time. God exists eternally. He's just, he exists outside of time. Eternity is outside of time, but the punishment always lasts longer than the crime. And I'm suggesting to you that it's hypocritical to claim that this is unjust. That's the way we do it right now. And none of us loses our composure and thinks it's unfair that we put someone in the prison for 10 years sometimes when they commit a crime that lasts for 30 seconds. The last one that we'll mention for the sake of time, number four, fallacy in this argument there is nothing unloving about withholding, uh, withholding people accountable for their choices. Uh, most people don't understand what love is. When we say that God is loving and people object to that, it's because they don't understand what love is. They sort of have their own idea of what love is, and they don't listen to what the Bible teaches that love really is. God doesn't love anyone in isolation. He loves the one who commits the crime, and he loves the one that he commits the who who the the person who the criminal commits the crime against. Right? He loves everyone. He doesn't love anyone 
in isolation. That is, he wants to do what's best for the one who commits the crime and what's best for the one against whom the crime is committed. And it's not a loving thing to say, I know you killed someone, but I love you, so I'm not going to hold you accountable. God doesn't do that. And anybody who thinks that's what love is just doesn't understand what love is. Here's what God does. He creates human beings, and he gives them free will. He allows them to choose whether they would like to be with him now and in eternity or not. He does not force, he does not mandate that anyone be with him now or in eternity. He doesn't force anyone. And when people choose, he respects their choice. See, God is loving. He tells people, this is what is good and this is what is bad. You did something bad back there. I don't want you to suffer eternally the consequences of your bad act. And so here's what I will do. I will pay an incalculable price for your soul. I will send my own son. He's the only one I have. I will allow him to bear the consequences of your sin so you don't have to. And I invite you to choose to be with me through him. I'm not going to make you, I'm not going to force you, but I'm going to encourage you to choose. And whatever choice you make, I will respect it. See, God, uh, there is a sense in which he, there is a sense in which he sends people to hell in the same sense that a judge sends people to prison. But you know what? If I go out here and murder somebody, I sent myself to prison. Isn't that right? I mean, the judge has a function and he's got an involvement, but if I go out here and I hurt someone and I go to prison, that's what I chose. When people go to hell, it's what they choose. God has done everything consistent with his nature and man's free will to prevent people from suffering in eternity. And I want to suggest to you, friends, that there couldn't be any greater proof of his goodness and his greatness than that. If a person says, I don't want to be with God, God says, I'm not going to make you. But if you are with me, then it will be this way. And if you're not with me, then it has to be the other way. People make their own choices. No one goes to hell unless they choose to do so. And God is willing to spare even the most outrageous of sinners for Christ's sake if they want to be spared. That's his goodness. That's his greatness. He loves everyone, and he made ample provision for even the worst of sinners like me, like Paul, like you, to avoid eternal punishment. And then he respects their choice. So query, 
If God is good and God is great, why does he punish people eternally? He created human beings to exist ultimately outside of time, right? I mean, every one of us is going to have an existence outside of time. And he invites us to spend that eternity with him. But he lets us choose. And some people say, through their actions of no other way, I would rather spend my eternity in torment than spend it with you. And then God says, well, that's a very poor decision. But I respect your choice. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I mean, there's only one. There's only one Son of God. And the Father allowed him to come and to pay the price for, for my sin and for yours. You know, Isaiah says he, he bore the sin of many. Isaiah talking about Christ, you know, before he came prophetically, he's talking about Jesus and he says, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes... We are healed. That's your invitation. That's your invitation. Not one person has to go to hell. Some people will choose to do so, and the reasons that they might choose to do so are their own, and God respects their choice. God invites us to be in heaven with him for eternity. He says, I know you messed up back there. I know you deserve to be punished, but I have grace. I have mercy. I extend it through to you through Jesus Christ. Won't you accept it? He reaches his hand out to the human family through Jesus Christ. Won't you accept his hand?